And I wake up, it's a beautiful spring day, and I go for a bike ride. And in the middle of that ride, I become stoked with fear. I'm not with my children for the first time. Mel Schwartz, he's a marriage counselor, therapist, and author of the recent book, The Possibility Principle, How Quantum Physics Can Improve the Way You Think, Live, and Love. He's been featured in Psychology Today, TEDx, and much more. In today's episode, I got to sit down with Mel and talk about defining moments and transformations in his life, in his clients' lives, and how you can take those insights and make changes to your own life. So stay tuned. Let's cue the intro. Welcome to the Personal Transformations Podcast. This podcast is about exploring defining moments. When you wake up, stop living your life for someone else and start living for yourself. We'll dig into the personal stories of unique individuals who've been down this path, focusing on the how of life transformations. And now your host, Paul Keene. Hello, I'm Paul Keene, and welcome to episode one of the Transformations Podcast. On this inaugural episode, we're going to kick things off with an amazing guest, Mel Schwartz. I've known Mel for almost 20 years. He's an author, TEDx speaker, psychotherapist, and marriage counselor, and an all-around great person. He lives what he teaches, and he has this unique ability to distill complex ideas into tangible therapeutic lessons that bring freedom not only to my life, but many people's lives. I've always wanted to speak to Mel about his own awakening and what he's learned by working with thousands of people just like you and me. But before we get into the conversation, hit subscribe, drop a comment, let me know how you're feeling about the show. Your simple act of participation will help other people seeking freedom to find what they're looking for. So right now, let's head on over and talk with Mel. Mel, hey, thank you and welcome to the Transformations Podcast. I, uh, I really appreciate you being the first participant. And I'm really glad you're here specifically because, you know, I've felt um, as someone who's known you for a very long time that you have a particularly unique perspective on transformations, not only as someone who's actually undergone uh, some pretty serious transitions in your own life, but as someone who works with a lot of clients, um, not to mention that you're an author and a speaker um, of most recently of a book called The Possibility Principle. And so I think that this is an absolutely wonderful opportunity to uh, bring not only your perspective, but to have a really amazing uh, discussion today. So thanks for, thanks for being here. I'm excited to be with you, Paul, and particularly to be with you in the launching of your Transformations podcast. So that's cool. exciting. So let's have at it. Yeah. So look, I mean, for our listeners out there, I am, in fact, practicing what I preach. This is uh, part of a resolution of my own to move forward and, and embrace things that I've wanted to do for a really long time and not uh, get stuck um, in the um, fears and of, of certain uncertainty of moving forward into new areas in one's life. Um, but this is, is something that, you know, for people who don't know you, that you've undergone yourself. I was wondering if you could share a little bit of that story of, of your own major transition in life, coincidentally, at the exact same age I am right now. Huh. Well, I was living the life I thought I should be living. Mm -hmm. I was in business, pretty successful. 
I was about 40 years old. I was driving home one day from Manhattan to my home. I lived in Chappaqua, small town of Westchester, famous for the Clintons residing there. Great place. I had two little kids and a big mortgage, big house I had built. Driving home that day, I had a breakthrough, what I call defining moments. The defining moments when you have an insight, but you don't let it fade. You commit to it. It heads you down a new path. My defining moment was driving home, I thought, you know, this isn't good enough. I found a way to make some nice money and be successful, but I was, I was short on meaning and purpose. I was short on things that stimulated my intellect and my spirit. So I made the decision driving home. By the time I got home, I walked into the house and I told my wife, who shortly thereafter became my former wife, I said to her, I think I'd like to close the business. She was alarmed. She said, what will you do? I said, I don't know. I went to sleep that night as excited as a kid the night before their birthday party because everything was possible. I wasn't worried or anxious. I remembered many years before someone had asked me, what do you love to do? My response was, I love to help people think differently, to get insights. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself, well, what would that look like? And that led me toward, well, I can go to graduate school, become a psychotherapist, write books, teach, do workshops. So by the morning, I had it. Now, the embrace of uncertainty was, well, most people in that position would say, I can't do that. How's it going to work financially? What are the risks involved? How do I know I'll be good at it? I was always raised with a spirit of, why can't I? And it's that embrace of uncertainty that allowed me to navigate the path that lay in front of me. Mm-hmm. Now, some people might think that at this moment, well, that sounds reckless or irresponsible or foolish. Well, I realized that my pathway toward what I was shooting for might not work out, but it would get me in movement and I would navigate along the way because mm-hmm. I was following a pathway of passion. And it wasn't smooth sailing. There were a lot of bumps along the way. But I found that it was accurate that I could navigate that pathway. I had to welcome the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've come to look at the problem with certainty in people's lives, our addiction to certainty and how it keeps us stuck, anxious and fearful. Right. And, and I believe, Paul, uh, I know you've seen my TEDx talk on anxiety, overcoming anxiety. I believe it's our addiction to certainty, mm-hmm. which is unachievable. We can't know the future, but we mm-hmm. still try to know it. That's what keeps us stuck. That's why change is hard. Paradoxically, if we welcome uncertainty, we get to harness the change process and still be in charge. We're the captain of the ship, but we have to get the ship into the water. Right, right. And I, I want to come back to that in a second because I think it's an incredibly important point. In fact, um, when I think about um, you know the, the need for certainty, but conversely, the need for um, significance, you know, other esteem, it can really lead us to some uh, very perverse outcomes. 
And, you know, not only in the crisis of, of anxiety, but the need to fill that anxiety with other things. Um, you know, but one th- thing had always, uh, as I've listened to this story um, from you in, in the past as well, I had wondered, you know, for yourself and, and for others, do you find that, that, that these moments that come, these moments of clarity or these insights, are they, are they kind of like the, the drip, drip, drip of the water finally going through the rock? Or is it um, common for something to appear like an insight out of nowhere in a way? Do you, do you find that things are boiling and bubbling for a while? Well, I believe that on the subconscious level or unconscious level, things are percolating. Um, I kind of use this phraseology. I try to learn how to get out of my own way. Mm. And for me, getting out of my own way means I don't clutter myself with too much thought. Now, thought happens all the time. Mm. Some of us see the thought and some don't. I've learned that when I can quiet my thought, which is what I call thinking. You see, Mm -hmm. thinking, as I know you're familiar, Paul, the way I talk about thinking is thinking is what happens when I see my thought operating. That there's a me that is more sovereign. I am not just the end result of my thoughts and feelings. So when I think, I create a space. There's a nanosecond between my thoughts. Now, in the nanosecond between my thoughts, I've entered into the realm of pure possibility, pure potentiality. I'm speaking now of the reality of quantum physics. So in that space of pure possibility, I invite in those insights to percolate and bubble up to the surface. Mm -hmm. So I am not that masterful that I can summon them up on demand. But increasingly, I find that I set the intention, it will come to me. Mm-hmm. And it does. Intention matters. So it's intention and creating the space between your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I, I have had that kind of interesting experience recently where, you know, I kind of almost imagined the the receiver being your brain and, and the thoughts being the the transmission that comes through. And for many years, you know, in all candor, you know, it was me putting um, ideas of significance above the other things that I've wanted to do in life. Oh, you know, you, oh, you can't do that. Oh, that's not something you should be able to do, or that isn't significant enough. Um, and I've asked that person to sit down and to, you know, go off into, uh, and uh, he's had 40 years. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take over now and allow myself to have uh, other thoughts and explore that possibility for a while without the uh, constant barrage of other thoughts and fears, uh, at least to the, to the extent that I can. Um, you know, when you, I was wondering if you might be able to explain for a little bit of those folks who don't know you, um, you know, how the concepts around, uh, you know, quantum physics and kind of the inseparability of, of ourselves and lives kind of came into your, into your thought process and, and how that informs the way that you assist people to kind of keep those thoughts, not only to keep the, the, the fears away, but at the same time to uh, be able to invite in possibility. Because I think that's the, that's the converse part, right? Well, the thing that I try to anchor myself in now is possibility. So, so I was wondering if you could kind of introduce that and help, help me to help people understand that, that framework of thinking. 
Sure. Um, I'll begin with my personal anecdote as to how I first opened to these concepts. So let's fast forward from that day that I told my ex-wife I was closing the business. It's a few years later, and we've gotten divorced. Mm. And uh, to my surprise, I'm really raising my young sons on my own. And, I'm sorry to interrupt, Mel, but did, did you expect that? With the like, did you expect no. the, the full magnitude of the changes that you? No, we we had a fifty-fifty parenting plan to begin with, hmm. and she did not do well uh, in in this transition. And um, so I chose. My children asked me, and I chose to step in. And ultimately, they lived with me. But on one particular weekend, they were away. And I wake up, it's a beautiful spring day, and I go for a bike ride. And in the middle of that ride, I become stoked with fear. I'm not with my children for the first time, and here I am alone, divorced, single man, 42 years old now. And whereas previously I embraced the uncertainty, in that moment, I got anxious. Probably had a panic attack. I turned the bike around, drove home, had no idea what relief that would give me. Got into my house, and I absentmindedly pulled a book from the shelf, which was called The Turning Point, by a quantum physicist, Fritjof Kapper. I began to read about this paradigm shift um, that he suggested was happening to our culture based upon these insights from quantum physics. Now I'm going back into the 1930s. Mm-hmm. just seemed to be coming to us now. And he explained how our reality, our worldview, is rooted in Newton's teachings. So just putting this very briefly, Newton's worldview, which is still fundamentally ours, mm-hmm. was what he called a machine-like universe, mechanistic reality. That reality is comprised, it looks like a giant machine. For Descartes, it was a clock. It was comprised of separate things only connected to each other through causality. Quantum physics reveals something entirely different. Going back for a moment, Newton's worldview, he gave us what's called determinism. With Mm -hmm. enough data, we could reasonably predict the future. Taken at the extreme, that led to our addiction to predictability and certainty that we discussed previously. Now, quantum physics, and by the way, folks, for your Paul, for your listeners, I am not good at science. (laughs) It was one of my worst subjects. I don't read or do the math. I'm just listening and looking at the concepts. So there were two principles of quantum physics which stunned me. One is inseparability. Mm -hmm. As the Eastern mystics had always said, and as Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist, proposed, Reality appears to be one, undivided, inseparable whole. We all participate in that reality-making process, but there's no division. So I thought, wow, if we shifted that way of thinking, empathy, compassion, altruism, love, connectivity would be the natural byproduct. In Newton's worldview of separation, runaway competition, um, 
absence of collaboration and cooperation, Mm -hmm. the need to win would be the ruling theme of that worldview, which is what impacts us in our world. Secondly, quantum physics tells us that Newton's determinism is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Reality is actually uncertain. Now, I'm reading this book, coming home from my panic attack, and within pages, I'm feeling calm, intrigued. And I thought, reading this cured my panic attack? What the hell is going on? The hell of a moment. That's 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. and I've never stopped. So I take these principles, and I realigned my beliefs Mm -hmm. and my thinking so that it was another defining moment. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, oh, this is interesting. It was a commitment. I'm going to change my life. Look what this did for me. Over time, I integrated this new way of thinking into my approach as a therapist and all the other work I do around consulting, corporate work, talks and workshops. And I developed an approach whereby I integrate these principles Mm. into how I help and assist people. And it helps people overcome fear Mm -hmm. and develop resilience. And from there, on a more micro level, I apply all of this to the nature of thought and communication. So there's no aspect of my life or others' lives with whom I work that this doesn't touch. Right. Uh, how do you how do you find that that evidences itself most often? Is it in things like um, I know that in, in some other of your writings, you know, you talk about um, I mean what we might describe to random chance, or um, but you know what I find most interesting when I've experienced the change, it's it's akin to you've never heard some this name in your life. And then all of a sudden in, in one week, you hear it three times, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're just attuned to different possibilities. You've literally, as I referenced earlier, you've like almost switched the radio station to l- listen into a different frequency. And then suddenly you're seeing things pop up all over the place. What you're describing is not quite synchronicity, mm. but it's in the field of synchronicity. And your description is quite accurate. Um, tuning, shifting your antenna in Mm -hmm. a different direction brings you, shifting that intention brings you a whole new field of awareness. And it's not that it's out there, it's that you're participating with it. It's it's in your field now. And so if it's in your field, you come across it, you see it, you're bringing it into your being. Right. Right. You know, I, I think one of the things that I've been most curious to speak to you about is kind of how, the, how, you nav- how you advise or how you, in fact, yourself navigated, you know, the, the zoom in, zoom out from the macro to the micro. So, for example, you know, you've now decided, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a, a different degree. I'm going to move into a different direction. You know, there's obviously a lot of exploration along the way. Um, you know, there are some some really interesting uh, speakers out there who, you know, might say, "Hey, look, if you're really dedicated to something, there's all kinds of ways you're wasting money that locks you into your current situation." Um, you know, how do you advise people when they get down to the practicalities? Because you know, the people who are listening are going to have, you know, "Hey, I had a really interesting insight, but I've got one, two, three, four, five, um, 
And as, as I have my own one, two, three, four, five, you mentioned the same thing. A lot of us have like a large mortgage. You know, how do you help people to kind of separate those things? Um, or what do you advise them to think about and how to keep that fear from becoming an irrational fear? I think that I'm, I'm going to generalize now, which means, of course, I'm making an error. Sure. All generalizations are faulty. But I think that as a culture, and particularly people who may be upwardly aspiring and more mobile, we tend to we tend to default on the side of not taking risk. Mm-hmm. We're risk averse. I think you called it a chess match at one point. Yeah, I'm actually is going to move into that description. But let's think now. As a culture, we worry about the consequences of what we do. If I do this, what will happen? We don't pay attention to the consequences of what we don't do because mm. we never get to see those consequences. Or, or, or do we? Or do we? I often wonder, you know, is that the result of when you see someone who's perhaps, uh, you know, engaged in uh, too much uh, alcohol to the point where they become an alcoholic or drugs or, you know, um, something to fill a void that they can't quite fill. Now, there are people who naturally have maybe, you know, addictions. Um, but, you know, do you see the, the negative results of people not listening to themselves as well? Well, let's look at the things that are not so significant and apparent. The quiet, dulled lives, which from the outside looking in, you think that they're happy and everything's fine. But I can tell you that I get a peek inside those lives. And there's something about the resignation mm. to the safe, right. to the routine, to the letting go of your aspirations, and your dreams, and your visions that is depressing mm. and deflating. So I'm talking about the consequences of not going for it. Right. You see, those consequences are not acute and apparent in the moment. They are accumulating over a lifetime. Right. And they're sad. Oh. So, you know, again, as a culture, we focus on the consequences of our action. What will happen? And that may cause us to stop, pause, or not move forward. We need to ask the question, what will happen if I don't take this chance? So... Coming back to your reference to the chess match, our addiction to certainty and the way we live life is akin to how we might play chess. We sit back, we ponder, we deliberate, we analyze, we think if I make this move, what will happen? How will I respond? And that's fine for playing chess, but it is not a, it is not a model for how you want to live life. You see, living life requires getting into the flow of life and participating, not analyzing. Analyzing should be one tool in the toolbox of our mind. Mm. But for many people, it is the only tool. And we analyze too much, we stall out. Analyzing leads to fear. It leads to, in, in an excessive way, too much analyzing leads to a perturbing mm. of your own well-being. I believe in checking in with yourself mm. and evaluating. But when you analyze, you lose the core of your authenticity. 
Right. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it is it is at the core of everything that has uh, come to me in the last uh, recent past and stuff I'll share with with some of the listeners going forward. So, you know, it, it it's, you know, you had a um, some interesting thoughts and discussions around the fact that, you know, you're that the, the mind is not the thought. Right. You know, uh, like a footprint in the sand. Um, you know, the, the thoughts can have an impact on the mind, but the, the mind is, is, and the thoughts are changeable, right? So, you know, sometimes I find that those thoughts can be so, they almost get into, um, you know, a, a, for lack of a better term, they get into a groove, you know, you get used to turning, tuning into that radio station, almost like a preset. Uh, maybe for some folks who might listen to this, don't remember what presets were on the radio stations, uh, on the, on the car. Uh, but you know, how do you suggest or even how have you for your own life help people to kind of have a new North Star? I mean, even if they're aware of, okay, you know what, Mel, I'm following you. I, I believe that there's, you know, not everything's linear, not everything's, you know, deterministic. Um, you know, what, what, do you, um, what do you help them to, to tune into differently this time? as opposed to getting stuck on like fear and, and analysis? We have hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of thoughts, which tend to be old, mm-hmm. maybe a new take on an old thought. And those thoughts summon up the accompanying feeling. Where did the thoughts come from? My belief is our thoughts come from our primary beliefs about ourselves and others and how things work our beliefs and experiences. Mm. So I think the first step is to identify your core beliefs, primarily about yourself. Mm. And if they are pejorative, if they're negative, if they're critical, ask yourself how you came to that belief. How do you know it to be true? Most often, if we look at beliefs, we have to admit to ourselves we can't know it to be true, but it is a belief. Now, if you have a belief and a million thoughts that conform to that belief, you're going to have life experiences which are self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm. So if they don't suit you, pause. Ask yourself, what are my primary beliefs? Can I really know that they're not that they are true? Then move into the thoughts. I teach, it primarily in my book, but in my workshops as well, I teach people to see the thought, to mm. develop the muscle memory of seeing your thought and not becoming the thought. And if you're having recurring thoughts that are troubling or limiting, picture putting your forefinger over your lips and saying to yourself, saying to that thought, Shh, quiet down. Now, you may have to do this hundreds of times hmm. until the thought stops knocking at your door. Right. You can do this. If we were taught how to do this when we were kids in school, it would be a different world. Now, if I can see my thought and not become it, I'm no longer reactive and responsive. So, as you're talking to me, Paul, if I had a thought that was troubling, I've learned to engage in what I call participatory thinking. Here's what mm-hmm. thinking sounds like. I'd say this to you. 
Paul, you know, when you were talking, I had a thought come up. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what my thought was telling me. See, there's a me apprehending yeah. my thought and communicating it. If we right. don't do that, then thought is literal. It tricks us. It tells us the truth, and then it takes off. And we're stuck. We're trapped in the groove of those thoughts. No, I think that's, that's incredible advice. You know, it's funny. I, um, I'm recording this session live from uh, my home office, otherwise known as my bedroom. But I'm overlooking a, uh, a great children's playground. And, you know, it's wonderful as I have a young son now who's two, uh, just turned two this last week. You know, I'm looking at uh, all these kids just going out and enjoying themselves for the sake of enjoyment, right? And I try to keep that thought in my mind. You know, I was listening to another um, podcast where, you know, the point was people, kids don't sit and think about the relative merits of being on the slide or climbing the bars or being in the swing. They just go do them because they like them. And they don't say things like, well, you know, I could make more money swinging in the swing. So I'm going to go and swing in that swing instead of going on the slide, which I enjoy a heck of a lot more. You know, Mm -hmm. it's almost absurd when you take it to that kind of extreme. But, you know, I really enjoy looking out at all these um, young people and thinking, no, that's actually the right perspective, you know, to think about it from the perspective of, you know, what I'm really just enjoying for its own sake. And then hopefully my belief is, uh, or, you know, I've come to the belief that following that enjoyment, that pure enjoyment will lead me to the right place ultimately. Certainly. We, we operate from some very false and limiting beliefs, mm. which is that you can't prosper financially doing what you enjoy. That work won't align with your passion. Now I'm speaking, there are obviously a small percentage of people who break through that. But for most people, work is just a burden. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe that you can pursue your passion and ultimately find a way, if you succeed with it, to earn the kind of money that you set out to earn or need to earn. Mm. Passion and livelihood do not have to be and should not be separate compartments. Whoever right. made up that rule. Right. That's, uh, it's pretty much something that uh, I have faith at this point that, you know, as I just try to experience things and, you know, uniquely um, to the discussion that we're having today, it's funny, I got an email in my inbox from um, a totally separate uh, organization, just totally coincidentally. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, maybe there is something to, I'm always surprised when you try to tune yourself into something new that um, things do kind of appear out of the blue. And it was an example of someone creating a business out of something that on a different take, uh, doing events that I had never imagined and they had caught fire with it. And I thought to myself, I could apply this to what I'm doing. Why could, why can't I apply that in a short period of time with a relatively, I mean, intellectually, it's an unimpressive business model, but it could be something that you would really enjoy running, you know, events in a new way that would engage people in finding the things that they want to find in life. That's what I want to affect in the world is to help connect people to things that they want to find. You, you see, know? it was right there, Paul, when you said, why can't I? Remember, that's what I said to myself when I was your age. Right. Why can't I? 
and that's where I'm at right now is, you know, Hey, I'm 40. I could, it's not over. I could be 80 and still say the exact same thing. It's, it's not over. Why can't I try this? You know, just because I've tried something in the past and it hasn't worked or, you know, I didn't work the way I had imagined it doesn't mean that I have to sit in that, that place forever. So, um, the one thought I, a question I did, you know, we were talking about this as uh, just a quick lead up to the interview and, and getting ready, everybody. Um, but the one canned question that I did have for, for you at Mel, and I kind of thought about it a little bit, but it's the back in time question. If you could go back to yourself, you know, at either of those two defining moments, you know, you've clearly had, you know, an incredible amount of development and iteration since that time that you could probably never have imagined. But uh, is there any advice or, or thoughts that you might share with that younger, younger Mel Schwartz? It's a, it's a great question, Paul. When we watch TV and someone's being interviewed and the person being interviewed says, that's a great question. My takeaway is, no, that's a question that they have already read the answer for. And it's not a great question. <laughs> For me, a great question is one where I pause and think, I've got no idea. That allows me to become authentic. Right. Even. Well, now looking back at those two defining moments, um, I would go back and give my younger self a pat on the back for having the devotion to self the caring and the nurturing for my authenticity to embrace fear and discomfort and say, I'm going for it. So I'd go back and say, hey, kid, good job. Cool. And by the way, I hope and anticipate that I will have still more opportunities in front of me. Absolutely. It's definitely not, uh, not all... Uh, figured out, you know, the iterations that I've even seen over the last, and I can't believe it's been 20 years that I've known you, uh, have really been um, a pleasure to to be part of and listen to. Well, thank you. I'm working on a brand new one, which is going to make either make you laugh or knock your socks off, but it's coming <laughs> through soon. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Now, Mel, um, thank you so much for your time today. We're coming up on uh, I, what I'm presuming is the logical conclusion of this episode of, <laughs> of the Transformations podcast. But for those listeners who want to dig in and learn more, uh, where can people find you online or elsewhere? Um, where, can they, where can they learn as much as they possibly ever wanted to know about Mel Schwartz? The best way to reach me is my website, and that's Mel Schwartz, M-E-L-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. I have a blog there with about 100 articles. You can read about my book, The Possibility Principle. Um, I have a podcast, The Possibility Podcast. And you can read all about my upcoming events and my work. Um, and there's contact information there as well. So I'm available. Your listeners can get in touch with me very easily. All right, wonderful. Um, as Again, it's always too short, but I'm sure we'll be talking to each other sometime soon. So thank you so much. For your time. Before you leave, I want to tell you, it's a great kickoff. And I love the way you engage me. Thanks so much. That's the, that's the idea. Great. You all, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Personal Transformations Podcast. To stay up to date on future episodes, please be sure to hit the subscribe button.